right now on Matter of Fact. <coughs> Cases of the Delta variant spiral, mask mandates are back, and hospitals are filling up again, this time with growing numbers of children. 30% of parents are ready to get their kids vaccinated as soon as possible. That means we have 70% that are waiting and seeing. A public health expert weighs in on the high stakes race to get shots into arms. Then, investigating homegrown hate. Evidence that warning signs about right-wing extremism were ignored for years. How will America confront its biggest threat from within? But first, it started with a 911 call. There was no way that I would expect a white police officer to get invested in my life as a black violent criminal. I saw something a little different in him. And turned into a lifelong bond. Glad to call you my friend. Thank you. <laughs> How a chance encounter changed lives. <laughs> I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. It is often the unexpected that changes lives. We've got a story that starts with a 911 call to police, a call that resulted in an unlikely friendship between a police officer and the man he arrested, a friendship that has withstood a murder trial, prison time, and nearly three decades. Our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, has that remarkable story. I kind of grew up in the Leave it to Beaver family, the white picket fence and, <laughs> and everything else, and was uh, fortunate to have great parents. So I came from a legacy of murderers uh, in my family, addiction, uh, uh, alcoholism, uh, physical abuse, sexual abuse. You're scared all the time. The story of Dana Marsh and Jarrell Jones begins here at an apartment complex just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, nearly 30 years ago. I used to deal drugs right here. Dana, then a police officer with just one year on the job, arrested Jarrell for disorderly conduct. The 24-year-old, a drug dealer and addict with a long rap sheet. After that, Dana would see me on the street. I'd be selling drugs or buying drugs, maybe, and he would stop the car, hit the lights, and pat me down, and then start talking to me about changing my life. I saw something a little different in him. I can't explain it. Don't know why. Jarrell eventually accepting the police officer's help. He left for his hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, with a bus ticket Dana bought him. This would have been the backyard. You'd come yeah. in from the backyard directly into the kitchen. But it didn't take long for Jarrell's troubled past to catch up with him. Staying in his great-grandmother's house, today an empty lot, he had a conflict with her husband and stabbed him to death. It was surreal. I felt like I couldn't believe I had done this. And um, I, stood, I sat there shaking, and then I basically uh, made a decision that I was going to turn myself in. And I called Dana and told him that I had just killed a man. He said, uh, i got to take accountability. Uh, this is the only thing that I can do to change my life. Despite Dana testifying on his behalf, Jarrell was sentenced to life in prison. He was going through a lot of remorse, but he also had realized that the only way that he could make his life worth something is helping those that were coming in that were gonna be able to get back out. 
Moving through prisons in four states, that's what Jarrell did, taking accountability classes, studying psychology, and counseling other inmates. From the outside, Dana, busy with a young family, continued to support him. He visited, you know, sent money, went to my, my, my hearings. Whatever he could do, he did. You know, he treated me like a brother. After 20 years behind bars, Jarrell's impact on others, earning him his release. Nobody had ever talked to y'all like that before. Today, that work continues, mentoring local teenagers, teaching things like landscaping and life lessons, ones he learned the hard way. When I say accountability, what comes to your mind? I tell them that they can be a promise of their environment instead of a product. Words are spirit and words are life. Jarrell's promise, helping neighborhoods like the one in which he grew up heal. His work as a community leader now attracting the attention of Birmingham's top cops and prosecutors. And always there, his friend Dana Marsh. Yep, we know we'll have a bar right here. That Absolutely. The former Georgia cop, now markets law enforcement equipment, his world still very different from Jarrell's. <laughs> There's times that I'll make a statement, Jarrell, instead of saying, well, that's stupid. <laughs> instead, he'd say, well, let's walk through this a little bit and then help me to have a different perspective, be able to see through his eyes. Two sets of eyes, they say, but one heart. Nearly three decades later. What would you tell a young police officer who might be encountering the same situation today? You've got to have compassion. Uh, if we don't, things won't change. We learn that from each other then. Yeah, because his compassion towards me translated to my compassion towards others. Father, we thank you for the food we're about to receive. I was a violent criminal. Mm -hmm. And to think that, uh, you know, that this is what redemption looks like, you know, sitting at the table with the, the actual police officer that arrested you. Miracles are real, and so, Toast to miracles. Glad yeah. to call you my friend. Thank you. Yes, sir. <laughs> In Fayetteville, Georgia, for Matter of Fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Next on Matter of Fact, if you could win some Krispy Kremes, airline tickets, even a million dollar prize, would you get vaccinated? I'll buy you a donut myself. What will it take to turn vaccine refusal around? And later, my parents definitely did the best that they could, but they wasn't able to have a job that's any better than like um, a minimum wage job. Is the American dream of home ownership out of reach for families without generational wealth? contagious Delta variant is taking hold in the United States. The rise in cases and hospitalizations and the return to masking and testing protocols has Americans worrying about what's next. It's been six months since COVID-19 vaccines started rolling out across the country, yet there's growing evidence that vaccine hesitancy is hardening and may be giving way to vaccine refusal. A recent Washington Post ABC News poll found that 29% of Americans say they are unlikely to get vaccinated. That's up from 24% just three months ago. Dr. Brian Castrucci, he's the president and CEO of the De Beaumont Foundation and a leading voice on public health issues. 
Brian Castrucci, always nice to have you back. You have been studying vaccine hesitancy, and I'm wondering where you are seeing that the most across the United States right now. We're seeing it mostly amongst Republicans and conservatives. And that's why, while we have 50% of the population vaccinated, in some states, it's still less than 40%. There are still places, though, that struggle with access to the vaccines. Isn't that right? It is, and we need to really change our access plan. We need local health departments have been doing a, a wonderful job hustling. Like, we need vaccine hustlers. Uh, Las Vegas, the Southern Nevada Health District, just did the most Las Vegas thing and had a pop-up vaccination clinic at a strip club. So you have to go and meet people where they are. If you're at the beach, do a pop-up clinic at the beach. We have to do everything we can to make getting the vaccine the easiest thing for people to do. At least in New York, we've now opened our vaccinations to 12-year-olds. What are you hearing from parents, who of course would be the ones who determine if their kids are gonna get vaccinated or not? I think Kaiser Family Foundation found that 30% of parents were ready to get their kids vaccinated as soon as possible. That means we have 70% that are thinking about it, waiting and seeing. And so we need to try to leverage school reopening as a way to get more kids vaccinated. Do you see more school districts saying, hey, listen, we can get back to normal. Kids got to be vaccinated. We are all getting a quick education in the 10th Amendment to the Constitution, recognizing that these are local or state decisions. So this is going to be playing out in, in local school districts, counties, states throughout the summer. There's also a forthcoming opportunity because it is likely that the vaccine will go from experimental use to full authorization. And data that we have access to has shown that that will help people be more confident in the vaccine. Brian Castrucci is with the De Beaumont Foundation. It's always nice to see you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. Ahead on Matter of Fact, was the January 6th insurrection really a surprise? They ignored it, minimized it. And now it's at their doorstep. The man who sounded the alarm about the growing threat of white supremacy more than a decade ago issues a new warning. And later, she made history in space. But now she's taken the world's deepest dive. The four-hour dive took her nearly seven miles down to the ocean floor. Meet the astronaut breaking more barriers. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. It's been seven months since the deadly January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, an invasion that could have stopped the counting of the electoral votes. The House Select Committee is investigating the Capitol riot, focusing on the intelligence failures, why the Capitol was not defended and protected adequately, and why so many warnings from the intelligence community were overlooked. Daryl Johnson was an analyst with the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Intelligence and Analysis. He authored an internal report warning about the rise of right-wing extremism. In the past year, I would say, have you, have you seen a change in how um, sort of national security and maybe government forces generally and law enforcement generally have thought about the domestic terror risk? Last year, we experienced two um additional facilitators of extremism here in this country. The first was the COVID-19 pandemic. And this really agitated and, and fanned the fears and paranoia of these far-right groups, because now you have governments instituting regulations and orders and requirements to wear masks. The second thing that happened is the fact we had this uh, social unrest. 
surrounding the George Floyd killing. And so, again, uh, this fed into these extremists' uh, fears and paranoia that this was going to spill out into the rural, uh, small-town America. So then let's talk about January 6th. I'm on Twitter. I'm on lots of social media. People have been talking about this very thing, maybe not all of the specific details, but definitely storm the Capitol. We have a, a thing we're going to do on this particular day. People who monitor these things seem to have been surprised. They talked about a failure of intelligence. Can you explain that to me? So, you know, it was a combination of, number one, the threat being minimized and, you know, turned a blind eye to the threat for the past 10 years. Number two, an overly cautious uh, law enforcement community that's hesitant about uh, going after these groups aggressively when they conduct criminal activity and terrorism. What would you say at the very least, needs to be done in order to wrap our hands around uh, domestic terror and white supremacist threats. So it's actually quite a bit of stuff that needs to be done uh, to combat this problem. We need training, national training for our state and local law enforcement for them to get a better understanding of how these groups operate and their violent histories. Uh, we need programs in our schools, uh, anti-hate programs to educate our children on the dangers of extremist belief systems and conspiracy theories. It's unfortunate that it had to come to the nation's capital, like I said, to the doorstep of these very legislators who have denied the problem, ignored it, minimized it. And uh, hopefully this is a serious wake-up call for them. Daryl Johnson is a former Homeland Security analyst. Thank you so much for your information. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Next on Matter of Fact, first-time home buyers looking for a piece of the American dream. You have to make this much money, you have to have this down payment, and we checked every single box. But we actually got a, um, a rejection. What's the real cost to the nation when America's next generation can't build wealth? To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. us consider owning a home an important step to achieving the American dream. Before the pandemic, a Gallup poll found that 70% of Americans believe that dream was achievable. Nearly a third said it's out of reach. An unexpected result of the pandemic? People moved. Home sales in 2020 hit a 14-year high, making the housing market tighter than ever. We talked to some first-time home buyers about getting in on the dream in these challenging times. My name is Bailey Jeremy. I am a mental health therapist and I live in Harlem. I've been thinking about buying a home. Uh, it feels like forever, honestly. My name is Rebecca Sen and I've been the executive director for the New York Mortgage Coalition for five years. People see owning a home as an avenue to build wealth, as their largest asset, and it's still the American dream today. My name is O'Neill Edwards um, from Brooklyn, New York, and I'm 27 years old. We moved probably like maybe 10 times in the past 10 years, seven to 10 times. My parents definitely did the best that they could, but due to external factors, they wasn't able to have a job that's any better than like um, a minimum wage job. So like the dream of home ownership is very important to us, but it was like, it seemed very impossible for like a period of time up until recently. 
I'd say we're in one of the most competitive homeownership and housing markets I've ever seen. We serve over 15,000 people a year. We work with a host of affordable mortgage lenders who offer sometimes 3% down. And even coming up with that can be tough on top of closing costs, which could be 10,000 plus. It's a complicated process. There's a lot that goes into it. It's very stressful especially being a middle-class family. I learned that there was affordable housing option two blocks away from our apartment. So it felt very unbelievable. They say you have to apply now, you have to make this much money, you have to have this down payment. And we checked every single box. We were very excited. We told our daughter, we we're like, we're just gonna move two blocks away. You know, make sure you're thinking about it and you're planning for your new bedroom. And shortly afterwards, I think in December, we actually got a, um, a rejection. The process of applying to this apartment started to feel like uh, a numbers game. We were just another number. I'm accepting that this uh, condo may not be the place that we can live in, but I'm still hopeful that Harlem is an option for us. I started attending a class by the Harlem Congregation. That class really taught me all the steps that I needed to take. I just continued to live beneath my means and save as much money as possible from my income until I got to a point where I had enough for a down payment for a property. I live on the third floor with my girlfriend and on the second floor we're going to get that rented out to a tenant. And on the first floor I decided to give that um, floor for, to my parents. It just gives me a, a, a great sense of pride. Like, this is where I struggle. This is where I move from one place to another. And the fact that um, I purchased the property at 26, that's a huge deal. It just gives me a, a, a sense of like, this is where I belong because I own real estate here. And I can genuinely say, this is my community. This is where I'm from. This is where I belong. When we come back, a deep dive into the extraordinary world of astronaut Kathy Sullivan. Finally, love trivia? Remember the name Kathy Sullivan. She made history as the first U.S. woman astronaut to walk in space. Just last year, she became the first woman to reach Challenger Deep, the deepest known point in the Western Pacific Ocean. In fact, she's the only person to do both. An astronaut and an oceanographer, Sullivan is a veteran of three NASA shuttle missions. She took her first spacewalk in 1984. The four-hour dive took her nearly seven miles down to the ocean floor. How deep is that? Well, so deep that if Mount Everest was submerged there, its peak would still be more than a mile underwater. Sullivan wore a specially made badge for her dive, which read, the most vertical girl in the world. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and I'll see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about the unlikely friendship between a police officer and a man he arrested, the push to overcome vaccine hesitancy, the intelligence agency warnings about domestic terrorism that were ignored, and first-time homebuyers facing a tough housing market, just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.